We'll turn to Isaiah 9 this morning. All along the way, we have been tracking this idea, this concept of the darkness that existed in the land of Israel as Isaiah's writing. The darkness that existed in the land of Israel as he references back to this war moment with Gideon uh, and uses that as a living illustration of the light that they so desperately needed. You can actually see it at the end of Isaiah chapter 8 that leads into uh, the passage we've been studying. So if you look in Isaiah 8, uh, just most of you on the previous page or maybe up that page, Isaiah chapter 8 verse 19, down through the end of it, and you see this darkness theme being explored. God speaking, he says, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Where do we look for help in the midst of darkness and difficulty? And so Israel is looking to these necromancers and these mediums. They're, they're thinking somebody that's passed on before us can give us the wisdom to help us to get through this moment of the darkness of our land, the oppression that we're experiencing, this endless cycle of good king, bad king, Seems like more bad kings than every once in a while a crop up of a good king and oppression from Assyrians and eventually the Babylonians and the loss of everything. And so Isaiah takes them back to Gideon and the deliverance from these Moabites who had invaded the land. And he's using this to point their hearts to a greater hope. What is it like when you are literally chained in darkness? There was a little girl in California and she was literally physically chained to her bed by her evil parents. They were the parents of 13 children, and they were abusive and horrific, and they chained these two little girls that they had to their beds because these little girls had had the audacity to try to sneak into the kitchen and get some food. They were starving. They laid in bed at night. Uh, It was pitch black outside, and they were bruised and hurting and starving and they cried out to their older sister who lived in the home who was 17 and asked her to get them some help and so their 17 year old sister took an ancient cell phone that their brother had hidden away and snuck out of the window looking for hope in the midst of darkness and I and I think that that image is actually a perfect image of how the nation felt and how you and I feel We're in the midst of dark places, chained, helpless, and hopeless, unable to deliver ourselves, powerless to break the chains of our own bondage. And so as we've studied in Isaiah, we see that this this dominant theme, this motif of darkness has come up all along the way. And so by the time we get to these names of God, every one of them speaks into the darkness of that exists in every one of our lives. And so in Isaiah 9, he picks up and he says this way in verse 1, there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide their spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And what will be the result of the increase of his government and of peace? There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so we've learned over the last several weeks that darkness brings confusion. Whether it's a medical diagnosis uh, whether it's a relational strain, whether it's a workplace decision, a community issue, we don't know what to do. And James tells us that we can cry out for wisdom. If we do so in faith, God will give it. What is the source of the wisdom that we need? It is the wonderful counselor. And so he speaks light into the confusion of our darkness with wisdom that we so desperately need. We've learned that darkness uh, doesn't just bring confusion, it brings powerlessness. And so he comes as the mighty God to deliver us from our bondage, to rescue us with his grace. We learned even that it brings a sense of oppression, and those that would rule over us seem to want to subdue us and take advantage of us and use us for their own ends. They find their identity and their power, and so if you ever have somebody that finds their identity and their power, whether it's an abusive parent, an abusive pastor, or an abusive politician, they use people but not so the Messiah who comes and delivers us from oppression and suppression. He doesn't find his identity in us, but he's the everlasting father and he will rule for eternity, caring for us with strength and stability, with security and a sense of rest. Well, darkness brings something else. It brings conflict. It always sets us at odds and puts us at war with others. And into that darkness into the darkness of the conflict of our lives we need the prince of peace this morning our our big idea will be the conflict from the curse of darkness is cured by the prince of peace what's it like to live in constant conflict there was a time in my life where that was that was my life i remember even as a young teenager thinking all i do is fight all day at school and then i come home and fight all day all night with my parents and family what's it like when we live in a constant sense of conflict well uh, researchers have studied and we know that there's actually some physical sociological psychological things that happen when your life is constant conflict one of the things it does is it actually desensitizes you to the sufferings of others it lowers your empathy threshold you, you, you just don't care because conflict is so much around you where it seems like everywhere you turn you're getting hit or shot at you start realizing the only way to feel safe is to shoot first, hit first, strike out first, lash out first. I'll hurt you before you hurt me. And this then lowers your ability to care for compassionately, tenderly the sufferings of others. You tend to live in a world and become uh, tunnel visioned. No one's hurting as bad as I am. And so I don't care how much you hurt. Uh, it warps your understanding of how to de-escalate situations. 
instead of learning the skills biblically and righteously of how to turn conflict into peace or how to reconcile people at odds, whether it's your own heart with someone else or two people entering the role as a peacemaker, when you're surrounded with conflict, you lose the ability to learn how to turn the volume down on a situation. It warps your understanding of others. It confuses your perspective of yourself. It creates constant tension in your life, which has been directly tied to even physical issues, whether it's strokes, heart attacks, high blood pressure. The constant tension of conflict can result in sleeplessness, headaches, and more. There's obvious physical danger if the conflict even involves physical abuse or wartime situations. No one suffers more in wartime situations than the weak and the vulnerable, than children and women. Constant conflict can make you dissatisfied with the relationships that you have. Constant conflict makes you feel isolated and misunderstood. Nobody cares what you think, and this person, if you're talking about a marriage or a parent-child relationship, this person that you think should seek to be questing to know you more or better than anyone else doesn't seem to know you at all. It makes you feel alone and distant. makes you feel like an outsider rather than an insider. Yet the reality is conflict is part of the human condition. Everywhere we turn, we see it. Now, the vast majority of conflict is negative, right? Uh, We even think good conflict. But when we think of good conflict in the realm of a business, it's because they've identified weaknesses and they change. If we talk about good conflict in the realm of relationships, we're talking about two people working through something toward peace. When we talk about conflict spiritually, we might talk about exhortation or admonition, confrontation, right? This new theo, I'm in your business to help you grow to be like Jesus. The goal is always in good conflict to produce growth and strength. But if we're honest, that's not the majority of conflict that you and I experience. The majority of our conflict is people who block the box on Harbison Avenue because they don't know how to stay out of an intersection. Or our neighbor who always parks behind our driveway, so I can't get out. Or a child not doing what you want them to do, or a sibling enforcing their will, or a spouse who doesn't seem to understand you. My guess is if your marriage is anything like mine, for the first many years of your marriage, you had the same fight, just in different terms. Over and over again, conflict. Conflict in the life of a church where suddenly there's someone that you were friends with and but when your friendship goes deeper, things get revealed and maybe you don't want to be around that person anymore. Conflict. The vast majority of our conflict isn't good conflict. And I would actually argue this morning, even the good conflict of our lives points to the reality of sin and the curse. But into this, Isaiah says, will come one who is the prince of peace. You might hear, be here this morning finding yourself pretty short-tempered and wearied by conflict. You might find yourself this morning avoiding people and places and situations, conversation topics, topics where conflict might arise. You feel like you're tiptoeing through a minefield as you talk to certain people. How do we navigate this? Well, we need someone to come into our world of conflict and bring peace. And so Isaiah says, the last name we'll look at this Advent season that there will be the Prince of Peace. The conflict from the curse of darkness is cured by the Prince of Peace. I'm going to set a high standard this morning. I'm going to tell you that we can find solutions to your conflict today. That's a high standard. Uh, I'd say 
99% of relational counseling that I'll do deals with resolving conflict. I'd say that most people do not know how to fight well. They don't know how to do conflict well. Um, and I'm saying they, but I'm saying it like in the royal they, so it's we don't know how, right? Um, you can't educate yourself out of it. We need something else. And so we need the Prince of Peace. Well, all along the way, uh, you might remember as we've been studying these names that they are, there's a duality to them. There's, for every one of these names, there's a human component and then a divine component. And the first two names, the divine component came first and the human component came second. This is a, a Hebrew hint of Jesus being truly God, truly man. And then the last two names, it's, it's reversed. And so you have human component and then divine component. And so that's the way it is this morning. And so it's Sar Shalom or, or Prince of Peace. Most of you have probably at least heard the word Shalom. And so we're going to unpack these one at a time. What does he mean by, Pete, by Prince? And why does he point to Prince? Why not King of Peace? Well, princes have a very unique thing about them. They're ambitious people. Princes are, are following the legacy of one who went before them. And they want to increase the legacy. Um, and and honestly, as a dad, we actually want that for our sons, I think. Um, one of the things I pray for my own children, I pray for actually your children as well, is that God will raise them up to be godly men and women who bring more fruit into the kingdom than you could have ever imagined for your own life. Um, we, we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. Uh, whether it's parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, we do that theologically, doctrinally. We, we stand on the shoulders of, of greats of old. Uh, we do it musically. We stand on these shoulders. And so a prince sees dad and sees what he's doing, and there's an ambitiousness to the prince. And most frequently in the Bible, we actually see this negatively. Uh, you might think of Rehoboam who takes over after Solomon. You may remember that, that story in the Bible when he's young, and here Solomon has been the wisest king ever. He was the son of the, the man after God's own heart. And so Rehoboam comes in, and he wants some power, and he wants to expand the kingdom. And so he says stupid things, right? He, like he says, my, my, my pinky finger will be thicker than my father's thigh, and he whipped you, but I'm going to whip you with scorpions and, and all this stuff, and he loses the kingdom over it. Sinful ambition. We see it with, with, with Gideon's son, Abimelech, that we looked at as we've worked through this passage. And so Gideon is a judge. He's not quite a king, although they want him to be king. And Gideon goes off the stage, moves off the stage of history. And Abimelech, uh, probably the least of his sons, because he's the son of a concubine, he, he wants this role as a prince. And so he kills 69 of his 70 brothers. And this is ambition to him. I want it. But we also see it positively in the Bible, and certainly we know that Jesus, it would never be negative, right? So we see Solomon coming after David, and so he's watched his father David, and, and David had all kinds of faults, all kinds of sins, did terrible things, murders a man, commits adultery, right? But David is a man after God's own heart. He's, he's also a man, though, of war who helped deliver the nation from Goliath and ultimately from the Philistines, and so Solomon comes along, and David wanted nothing more than to build the permanent habitation for God. God said, no. Well, what does Solomon do? Well, Solomon actually comes in, and through some good means, and, and frankly, lots of sinful means, he establishes a land of peace. Signs a lot of peace treaties and contracts, and the nation begins to flourish under him, and he builds the house of God. And he kind of finishes what his father started, and he's ambitious. And so we can certainly have good ambition. We can have very negative ambition. We have good prince, bad prince. How do we know the difference? And the question is, we could actually boil it down to one kind of question. What's the difference between a good prince and a bad prince? And it's this, who are they serving with their ambition? 
Who are they seeking to serve? There's a great book out there called Rescuing Ambition. And it talks about in a spiritual context, who are you trying to serve? And so if we ask that about Jesus, who is Jesus trying to serve as the prince of peace with his ambition? Well, Jesus is not driven by a mindset of competition with God the Father, obviously. Jesus is not driven by sinful, selfish ambition. And in fact, the Gospels tell us what kind of prince he is and what his ambition is. In texts like this in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or again in John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Whose kingdom did Jesus really come to advance? And it's one of the mysteries of the Trinity, right? Uh, one God, three persons. The Father is on mission to glorify the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit is on mission to glorify the Son and the Father. And the Son, Jesus, is on mission to glorify the Father and the Spirit. He didn't come to advance his own kingdom. And in fact, when his disciples wanted to make his own kingdom, uh, at one point they're mad at a city. Shouldn't we call down fire and brimstone? No, that's not what I'm here for. When he describes his kingdom citizens in the Sermon on the Mount, he uses language like mourning and, and poor in spirit and peacemakers and people who are persecuted. And Jesus comes and he says, I didn't come, I came to serve, not to be served. Jesus' ambition, his princely ambition, is so pure and it's so righteous because he's ambitious for the Father's kingdom. Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A prince is an ambitious ruler. Now this ambition becomes even more significant in verse 7 of chapter 9. Look for it here in the text when it describes the kind of kingdom he ultimately will rule, of the increase, and there you have ambition, the increase of his government. But it's an increase of peace, there'll be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We actually should be thankful for the zeal and the ambition of Jesus Christ and of God for his own glory. Because you and I are the blessed recipients of his ambitious zeal. I want to glorify myself, so I'm going to save Steve Johns. <laughs> Somehow looking at a very weak, broken carnal sinful person he says now that's going to demonstrate my power as we learned in corinthians it's not that he's looking for the strong and the wise and in fact when we understand corinthians we understand if any reason beyond just the pure unadulterated mercy of god why did he save you or why did he save me frankly the answer is because i'm weak and stupid so that he can put his glory on display so he can show his wisdom and his strength god does not need us he wants us as a way of putting on open display his forgiveness and his love and his grace and his kindness. And so we're thankful for the zeal of God. What gives me the greatest hope as a father for my children, as a neighbor for my neighbors, as a pastor, as a shepherd, as a sheep among sheep? What gives me the greatest hope? That I know God is zealous for his glory, so he's going to change us. He's going to save people. He's going to rescue people and transform people. And so I say, be zealous, O God, and thank you that you're an ambitious prince. The conflict from the curse of darkness, then, will be cured by the prince of peace. No one is more ambitious 
to solve the conflict of your life and my life than Jesus Christ. That's what prince means. The rest of it is unpacking or trying to unpack this this word peace. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to reverse engineer it. And what we mean by that is reverse engineering is like if you take a finished product and you take it all apart, and that helps you to understand the finished product. Uh, I remember when my dad was trying to teach me how to drive a stick shift, and um, uh, our car was a 78 Ford van. That's a great vehicle to try to pass your driver's test in, by the way. Uh, it was a stick shift and had a Chevy small block in it. And my dad's, and I'm just like destroying the clutch on this car and grinding the gears, and I couldn't get it. And um, my dad was being very patient with me, but I could tell the frustration was increasing. Uh, and some of you are old enough to remember what it's like to drive a stick shift. Lots of people don't even drive them anymore, but you, re- you know the smell of a burning up clutch. And I remember my dad one time just sat me down in the living room and he explained to me how all of it worked. And once I understood, I had in my mind, uh, I'm wired weird, once I could picture the flywheel and, and how the gears would change, we went out and I did it. And he went and literally parked the 78 van on a hill and said, okay, now let's go. That was terrifying. But it worked. You deconstruct something sometimes and that'll help you to understand it. And so we want to reverse engineer peace here a little bit this morning so that we can understand this ambition of Christ to help us have peace. And we can do it, first of all, with thinking about the curse and conflict. So what we want to do is ask, what's it, like, what's it like when there was peace, if we need peace now? Like, right? So if you say we need a peacemaker, what does that assume? You've got two people at odds. You've got some kind of conflict in your life. Well, conflict is so much a part of our existence, a little bit like asking the fish what the water's like. It's hard for us to see it, hard for us to envision it. Uh, we've all had arguments. Some of you had arguments 15 minutes ago on your way to church. We've all had conflicts. We, we, we know what this is like. We know what it's like to fight well, to fight poorly. Some of us are conflict averse, and so we think that that means we live in peace. It doesn't necessarily mean you live in peace just because you won't have the argument. We all know what this is like. Some of you had to squash a conflict this morning because you wanted to have a fight and you chose not to. Other conflicts are far deeper and they leave lasting scars relational wounds that you don't know that you'll ever recover from fully hidden scars there are certain trials you go through that are visible to everybody there's other trials you go through that are far deeper and longer lasting that no one ever sees when they've studied children who've gone through abusive homes uh, yeah there's physical abuse and there's sexual abuse uh, and they are traumatic and i'm no way minimizing them at all but they've discovered the most warping effects on a person are emotional and verbal abuse. It utterly transforms the way you relate to everyone and anyone around you all the time. This kind of conflict, some of you live with these kinds of conflicts and scars in your life. All of these are simply reflections of our greater conflict with God. James 4 tells us uh, that even in the church life, there is conflict. Why is there wars and fights? Why is this happening in you? It's because of your wicked ruling desires. In Corinthians, you have Christians taking one another to court. Why does conflict seem to transcend marriage, friendships, family, personality types, giftedness, or culture? It doesn't seem to matter where you go. and It is part of the human condition. We could actually even say it this way. There's nothing more common to being a human than conflict. And so how do we really understand that? Well, if we reverse engineer it, we want to ask this then, was there ever a time that there wasn't conflict? Was there ever a moment when there was no conflict in the world, where it wasn't part of the human condition, 
where it wasn't the natural bent of all people in humanity. And to figure out that mess, we can go straight back to the garden. We can go to the beginning, and there was a moment. And then conflict came. And conflict is directly related to the curse. Now, <laughs> when we say curse, we're not talking four-letter words. Right? And we're not talking voodoo dolls with pins in them or going to the local witch doctor and asking someone to curse someone. When we talk about curse, curse biblically, theologically, is divine judgment. And so we know that there's perfect peace, right? Adam and Eve walk with God in the cool of the garden every day. There's peace. There's peace as a married couple. There's peace between them and God. There's peace even in the animal kingdom. They're working and keeping so that the world would flourish and they're seeing God nourish it and they're plucking fruit and eating it and, and they're going to bed at night laying down and if they're cold then there's a lion that can cuddle up next to them if they're cat people. I don't think they were because they were perfectly righteous. So, Yeah, well, hey, hey. Um, but it was perfect peace. But then sin comes. And immediately the first thing we see is conflict, don't we? We see conflict between the husband and wife, and we see conflict between people and God. We see conflict even in the animal kingdom, and you can only imagine this stunning, shocking moment when God calls an animal close to him and slits its throat to skin it for them. Can you imagine how devastating that was for Adam and Eve to watch? Conflict is now everything, and it's all directly related to the curse. You can see it there in Genesis when he describes it. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. He describes what the curse will be like for the snake and the serpent. And we understand that it was Satan working through the serpent. And so we kind of have this mingling of the curse upon Satan, the curse upon this animal, this creature we know is a snake anyway. But it extends and it says in verse 16 to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children Part of the extension of the curse is the presence of this pain and this conflict-laden moment. And the reality is childbirth is supposed to be great joy and great happiness. And even to this day it is, but it's always tainted with pain and suffering. When we got to go and see the Carvers last week and I got to hold uh, the baby and he's just like the cutest, most adorable thing in the world and he was wide awake and it was fun. But always part of the, the conversation is you look at the mom and you say, how are you? And, and how was it? And, and you're not probing for deep details. You're just acknowledging the fact we know that there was a pain and suffering that happened because of the curse. The joy has become a sorrow. God put us on this planet to work it and to keep it, for it to flourish and for us to see God just grow and, and to bring the earth into submission all around the globe. But because of the curse, the ground is even cursed, he tells Adam. So even the joy of profitable work comes with pain and sorrow, literally blood, sweat, in tears because of the curse conflict happens and so adam blames god and we see this divided relationship and uh his wife blames him and and animals are in conflict with them and with one another and suddenly this sweet sweet and we could even think of this edenic or idyllic garden is thrown into darkness of conflict and perhaps no greater sign of the conflict than when their older son mur murders their next son and lets him bleed out into the ground. And it's just a devastating moment. You know, I think it's one thing for us to live, we're born into conflict and we live with it. Adam and Eve live literally 
hundreds of years, never forgetting what it was like before, but just surrounded by just a wicked world full of death and murder and mayhem. You can only imagine what it was like when Adam and Eve had their first argument, trying to work their way through it. Uh, Maybe it was for some of you, the first time you had an argument with your spouse, and you're stunned by it. But there'll even be the curse at the end. And we see the ultimate revelation of God's conflict with humanity. As the language is even used this way, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Conflict as a result of the curse pervades every aspect of our life. It comes out in the way we speak and it comes out in the way we act toward one another. It comes out when we hastily wound people we love. It strains every relationship that we have. It wears on us physically. It works on our workplaces where ambition becomes stepping on the heads of others. It works into our community with neighbors selfishly turning against neighbor. And ultimately, it works in our rebellion against God. And our conflict with God as a result of the curse is desperate for a cure. You are not alone when you live in the awareness, the reality of your sinful condition and the conflict of your life. You are not alone in the strain of your relationships. You are not alone in the bondage of your darkness. That one little girl in that family of a home that ultimately became titled the House of Horrors, she was not the only one chained there. She was chained there. Her little sister was chained next to her crying, and her brother was in the next room crying. They were two of 13 children in a horrible home filled with darkness. You are not alone in your conflict. Don't believe all the Hallmark movies. These conflict-free existences. You want a conflict-free friendship? I'll give you the solution. You ready for it? Don't ever go deep. Because you get to know someone deeply, eventually you will sin against them, or they will sin against you, and you're going to have conflict. And how will you navigate it? And unfortunately and sadly, isn't that the solution so many people have found? Distance from others. Isolation. Aloneness. They already feel alone, so let's just live alone. Hermit kind of living. And God never intended it that way. He intended us to live in community. So then we have this moment, well, how do I do community with, communion with God and community with other people, whether it's my family, my, my, my friendships, my children, my parents, my neighbors, my, my coworkers? How do I do that when there's always going to be conflict? And so you'll even see some people, they just move from one conflict to the next, don't they? And they can't ever find a solution. They're trapped in the ultimate expression, the ultimate expression of our sinful condition is this divine separation from us. The reality that unless something changes, you're born in this world in sin, each and every one of us is a sinner, we're under the condemnation because of our sinfulness, and the ultimate resolution to that sinful conflict, unless something changes, is ultimate eternal isolation from God and from others. But God is a good God, and he's a loving God, and so he brings a blessing. Shalom, that's the word here that's used, Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. Uh, If you don't know any Hebrew at all, I assure you you've heard of the word Shalom. 
the Jews speak it all the time. Shalom. They'll greet one another with shalom, and it's peace, and they speak peace, and they pray for peace, and they, they long for peace. It's an idea of, of not just relational connection, but the total absence of conflict. And, and it's a cry for the children of Israel, for the Jew, even modern day, to have a total removal of conflict. Uh, pray for the peace of Israel, the shalom of Israel. There's a recognition that's woven into them. And where do we find that? Well, we find it probably most strongly in what we call the priestly blessing. And it's a priestly blessing is so important because it's what you pray over someone else. And, and so he's telling Aaron, pray this over them. And number six, you've probably even heard ministers in services with it this way. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace or shalom so shall they put my name upon the people of israel and i will bless them in other words to say peace and experience peace is to have the name of god set upon you there are so many nuggets of gold here do you know when this blessing shows up i'll just give you some of it right this is one of those it's not fair i studied all week you get like this much of it but i'll tell you this this comes at the end of the nazarite vow what why do we have Nazarite vow where any Jew could covenant themselves to God? They would live very differently and be immediately obvious that they've dedicated their life to God. And at the end of this, we have this moment. There is no picture in the Old Testament that's a better picture of the New Testament Christian than the Nazarite vow. People who are intentionally, willingly submitted to and pursuing after God in such a way that it's obvious to everyone around them. Now, for a Nazarite to take the vow, it was obvious in some very strange ways culturally, right? They, they don't eat raisins, drink grape juice, or touch wine. They don't touch a dead body. They don't cut their hair. All those were very countercultural moments. And so you would see a Nazarite, and everybody knew it was a Nazarite, right? And so the New Testament Christian lives in such a way that should be countercultural. But the countercultural nature of the New Testament Christian is a life of love of God and of others, not of uncut hair, praise the Lord, or never going to the funeral of your parent, or never drinking a glass of wine. That's not the marker. The marker is the countercultural nature of a New Testament Christian ruled by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And when you walk as Jesus walks, guess what? People are going to notice. It's at the end of that vow that you have this blessing. It is as if God is saying you really want the declaration of the name of God upon the nation of Israel. It's not genetic Jews. It's all those who are made Jews through Abraham, i.e. through Jesus Christ. It's an amazing moment. It's a whole sermon right there. You got it in 45 seconds. But this blessing then, this blessing is astounding. Uh, even the language, it increases in syllables as you go along through every single verse. Uh, to be blessed is to have his, his peace set upon you, and so it builds in verse 24 from three words to five words in verse 25. That By the time you get to verse 26, it's seven words. The syllables expand from 12 to 14 to 16. It's, uh, it's called what we call parallel syllables. Get it out there. Just a minute. Symbolism. And so the point is they're all actually mirroring one another, and when you use Hebrew this way, it's to drive to a climactic, moment so we would ask this what is the peak what is the precipice of god's blessing on you it's peace it's shalom it is that god would rest so powerfully on you and in your relationships that conflict would become a distant memory of the past conflict with god 
conflict with others, conflict in your homes, in your living rooms, in your dining rooms, conflict in your workplaces, conflict on the phone calls, and you get a Christmas card from someone that it actually hurts you because all you really wish you could do is sit down with them and have peace. Our hearts crave that, don't they? And maybe you've even, and maybe you're even this morning in this kind of circumstance where you've done all you can do to bring peace. You've done all that you can do, and we understand that peace comes through confession and repentance, owning what you've done and asking someone to forgive you, and you've done all you can do. But you've hit that 12-foot high brick wall with razor wire on top of it. You can't control someone else to do what they're called to do. And so there's never peace. You've laid down your weapons, and in reality, you feel like you're constantly getting hit with a sword. Or as Proverbs would describe our words, daggers and spears and arrows. And so this call of peace, if we're honest, sometimes in the reality of our life, it feels a lot more like little kids dreaming of sugar plum fairies than anything that could ever be reality. But as we've been learning, these are intended to be reality. And there is intended to be this ultimate issue of peace. And so what will it be like when peace comes? How would we even recognize it? How will we notice it? Well, Isaiah doesn't unpack it here. He just kind of declares it, Prince of Peace. And then he talks about this governmental nature. And he talks about this rule and the throne of David and, and, and justice and righteousness. But he doesn't really describe it for us. And we need something to kind of hang our hat on. right? We need something to, to hang our shingle on. Okay, that's what it will be like. Well, he does describe it in two other places in the book of Isaiah. And the first one, uh, I would call this a powerful interchange. There has to be heart transformation. And you're probably actually already familiar with this passage. It's a pretty famous passage, and it shows up in Isaiah 11. It's kind of unusual a little bit here, but it says the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. You may have heard of it as the lion laying down with the lamb, but the text here is the wolf shall lay down, will dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I look at that, and, and, I'm, and I'm a little bit like, great, animals get along now. That doesn't solve my conflict, right? I mean... So some of you are more animal people than we are, than I am. <laughs> you know, we enjoy families. We, we have a, a pet right now, Crazy Walter, the bird who sees his mirror image in the transom windows of our home, and he keeps attacking himself. And so we named him Walter, and now he's Crazy Walter. And, um, and, and so we just enjoy Walter. That's the kind of pet we like. He comes, he visits, he goes, right? And so some of you are, you're much more animal lovers, and great. I think in that way you're nearer to the heart of God than I am. He love, clearly loves animals, right? And so um, there'd be no more National Geographic specials of watching uh, a, a cheetah run down the, the baby gazelle. There'd be no more videos of alligators jumping out and capturing or a hippopotamus destroying an animal or, or I don't know, a bear, a grizzly bear killing something. And you'd be like, yes, finally, peace. Just to be honest, great 
But is that worth anything if National Geographic has to post a special and say, hey, we got no more animal attack videos? You're like, okay, great, and you turn it off, and then you get in an argument with your spouse. And does it really help? So on one sense, on one layer, on one level, yes, because it is a, God saying, I'm going to do undo all of the curse, including the shedding of blood of animal against animal. I'm going to cure the animal kingdom problem that you people started. Great. So in one sense, yes, that does comfort my soul because he's going to untie all the nasty, knotted mess of the curse. But there's something more here. What would have to take place so that never again would a wolf with a little ewe lamb next to it kill it? A bear would never again kill a fatted calf in order to feed their cubs. A lion would never again run down a gazelle. An alligator would never again attack a deer grazing by or trying to get a drink of water. What would have to happen? This is what would have to happen. Their very nature would have to change. Do you remember those conflicts you have where you've done all you can do? And you can't change the other person? He is telling us that when the Prince of Peace arrives in full power, he will transform the nature of every person. That's where peace will come. Now, I've been talking about the other. But let's really be honest. We know that our own souls need that kind of transformative power, don't they? There are people who are conflict avoiders. And so that can be good. It can be. But it also can be terrible because they never speak loving truth into other people's lives because they're afraid of the conflict, the necessary conflict that must occur. Then there are others, they're conflict avoiders because frankly, there's so fear of man, they don't want deep relationships and they're unwilling to go there. Then there's other people who love conflict. They've never met a fight they didn't like. They're always ready to rush into it. They just, they love instigating, antagonizing. They love reacting. And what he's telling us is for there to be true peace, there must be nature transformation. And that's exactly what he does in our salvation, our redemption. When you and I repent of our sin, we confess Christ, we turn to him, he begins this process of change. And it happens in several ways. Yeah, there is an instantaneous change. We get new desires, we get new life, we have the presence, the empowering presence of the Spirit. But we also learn that there's progressive sanctification change as God convicts us of sin and challenges us towards righteousness, calls us to respond to the conflicts of our life with humility that confesses what we've done, asks forgiveness of others, seeks to grow and change. And then one day, one day, there will be perfect peace because it will be the complete removal of our flesh. He says when peace comes, there must be heart transformation. Now, another nugget of gold I can't even unpack. Why, and I'll just simply ask you this, why is the only human that shows up here a small child, and why is the only threat to the small child a snake? But there's no more threat of a snake to the small child anymore. What a beautiful picture. I won't even unpack it. I'm just, this is like salty, right? Some of you are like, ah, oh, what? Hmm. Garden of Eden, serpent, the danger to the child, suddenly parents and everyone will be able to rest. And have, but that's just, that, was, that was additional, right? That was like extra. That's when they put the whipped cream on top of your peppermint mocha. But you can think about that later, just the total unpacking of the curse. We've got to move, though. There's powerful interchange, but there's not just powerful interchange. There's powerful ruling change. And this is actually earlier in Isaiah. 
describes the rule of Jesus this way. He says, He will judge, shall judge between the nations, shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. What we really need is the kind of prince who will come that I don't need to keep a sword any longer. There'll never be another threat of attack or assault. And so instruments of wars, beautifully, poetically, are made tools for growth. Weapons of destruction are made tools for life. Peace will only happen, listen now, when justice is guaranteed without question by a perfectly righteous ruler. I no longer ever have to defend myself because I'm ruled by one who will work perfectly all justice. Any kind of differing idea he will solve completely. You ever been caught in a relationship? Maybe a relational conflict moment where your spirit's convicting you, lay down your weapons. Lay them down. And you almost feel like it's a movie scene, right? You almost feel like it's, uh, you know what a Mexican standoff is? Uh, Clint Eastwood, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Right? You got, you got everybody's pointing a gun at each other. Well, we all know the reality. The first one to lower their gun is the first one to what? Get shot! That's how it works. You ever feel that way in your relationships? If I stop shooting, I start bleeding. As a matter of fact, I, li- I like to go full on Navy SEAL, right? Overwhelming firepower. Why does it even matter that we went from bows and arrows to muskets to repeating rifles to machine guns? Because whoever can fire the most downrange, put the most lead downrange the quickest, is going to win. And he's telling us there will come a moment when you and I would lay down any weapon of conflict, any snide remark, any passive-aggressive manipulation, any, any wrongheadedness. And yes, it will happen by transformation, heart transformation, but one of our greatest fears is that he transform me, transforms me, but he doesn't transform you. Right? Like, like imagine if I run across a grizzly bear in the woods. My heart is transformed, and I don't want to hurt you. But man, if he don't do a work on that bear, I'm, I'm food tonight. I'm not, I don't want to fight my neighbor, but if he doesn't do a work on my neighbor, then I'm going to be victim. I'm not going to drive downtown and leave my keys in my car unless he's done something to everybody. So the only way it will happen, listen now, is heart transformation individually, but life total domination as he's ruler over everybody. You see, we are in the already not yet. See, we've lived under the curse. The prince of peace has come, born in a manger. He lives a perfect sinless life. He dies a voluntary sacrificial death for each one of us that are sinners, calling us to turn from our sin, trust him and follow him. And then he went to heaven to prepare us a place. And we're left behind here as people trying to live as kingdom citizens in a conflict-laden world, trying to show what life transformation looks like. But you know what we're looking forward to? We're looking forward to total domination where he will reveal that every square inch of this globe is mine. He says that day will come under the Prince of Peace. We must be delivered from this dark curse of conflict by being transformed by the Prince of Peace, but then also coming under his glorious rule. And what a transformation it is. I had a professor one time in seminary. He told me that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to us. I remember sitting in class being like, this is a new revelation. Never heard this before. And so he told us, if someone hits you on the cheek, hit them back. 
I don't know, it just doesn't feel very Jesus-like, right? I'm not saying you've got to just take whatever abuse somebody heaps upon you. I'm not saying that. But what he was missing is that we are kingdom citizens in the already not yet. And we're being called to live as Christ would live, even as we look forward to a day when everyone is fully revealed under his rule. What do you look for when you're chained in darkness? How can it happen? Well, Paul, as we study in 2 Corinthians, tells us. Paul actually describes the gospel this way. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us. That's the cessation of conflict, right? He reconciles us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is what I would call you to this morning in the midst of your conflict, even this Christmas season. Come to Jesus. And then if you are, and you're like, oh, what a good message. Yes, dear God, all the lost people in this room, may they come to you. Yes, and amen, but can I just ask you, do you live like that? Do you actually live like you've been reconciled to God and you have a ministry of reconciliation? Do you live as one transformed and under life domination so that you handle your conflicts with humble confession, repentance, and you offer willingly and freely forgiveness with grace and love and humility? The Prince of Peace has come and he will come once again but in the meantime, in the already not yet, we are called to live under his rule. And so as that little girl laid in her bed chained, her 17-year-old sister, Jordan, slipped out of the window of her home. Jordan was 17. She was one of 13 siblings. She's grown up in this home that would later be called by the police the horror house. She clutched this old cell phone stolen from her parents. There's videotape, CCTV tape of her slipping out of her parents' home window and running down the block. She has no idea where she's at. She's never spoken to a stranger. She is malnourished, and she hasn't had a bath in a year. She is her siblings only hope she happens to be free that night not chained to her own bed under the cloak and full of the conflict of darkness birth to parents who are called to protect love serve and nourish they only use their children to look better and don't care for them and she is her little sister's only hope she's shaking so badly she can barely dial 911 she's been so deprived academically she doesn't even know the word bruise to describe to the responding deputy, the marks on her sister's arms. But in courage and in grace, she makes the phone call. She talks to the officer. She was desperate for help. Her biggest fear was that the deputies would simply come and take her back home. He was literally the first man she'd ever spoken to, the first stranger she'd ever spoken to in her life. And what she was hoping for, what she was desperate for, is for someone in power to shine their face upon her and bring her peace into her world. What happens when someone is delivered from a world of dark conflict? They are transformed. They are rescued. And life is never the same again. As remarkable as Jordan's transformation is, it pales to the deliverance of the spiritually blind plunged into darkness, and yet delivered by the light of the Messiah where have you felt the curse of conflict this week? 
Where have you seen and known and felt this striving in your heart against someone else? Or they're striving against you? Do you remember how wearying it was, how exhausting it was emotionally, physically, mentally, certainly spiritually? Do you remember the stress and the pain? Our hearts cry out for the Prince of Peace when we live in the reality of our conflict and our hearts then cry, O Prince of Peace, be zealous for your glory and deliver me from the pain of this conflict. One of my favorite Christmas carols was never intended as a Christmas carol at all. Instead, Isaac Watts, a good Reformed Baptist, he, he was writing a book of poems based on the Psalms. And, and so he understood the Psalms pictured future. And so he took one, Psalm 98, and he rewrote it. And he wrote it about how one day the king would come and the king would deliver us all from this curse. And ultimately they, they, they stole, uh, songwriters stole some of the parts of the tune of Handel's work. Another theologian came along and added to it. And somewhere in the process from the late 1700s till now, people forgot that it was about the second advent. And they began singing about the first advent. And so we understand that while the light is breaking through one soul at a time, the darkness has begun to unravel. We sing joy to the world when we say, No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow, listen now, far as the curse is found. And so as we sing this morning, and we'll sing Joy to the World in just a moment, sing with a new knowledge of what that means, that He has come to unravel all of the curse, to deliver all of us from the darkness of this world and the conflict that comes with it. And so that's why we sing There is Joy to the World. And we sing about the first advent when all of it started to become undone, but we look forward to the second advent when life transformation and total domination become our daily existence. And so this Christmas, may we celebrate the Prince of Peace. Father, we thank you that there is a solution to our conflict. And that solution is the Prince of Peace. Father, we know that he works that individually through salvation, but we know he also works that progressively through sanctification Lord, I, I pray for any this morning who don't know you, that this Christmas they might come to know the Prince of Peace. Father, they would turn from their sins and trust you. But Lord, I also pray for each and every believer in this room that we would live in the reality of the Prince of Peace, that you have come to undo this conflict and this curse, and you are unraveling this knotted mess that we make of everything around us. But Father, also fill us with hope and with joy as we look forward to the day of completion. Give us grace in this already not yet, Father, that we might delight in Jesus this Christmas season, the Prince of Peace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.